0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Now and Men, the podcast about men, masculinities and gender equality. It's Sandy
1: Ruxton here, and I'm with Stephen Burrell, as always. Hi, Sandy, and hi, everyone. Uh, Yes, in this episode, we're looking in particular at issues faced by older men. We have it with Shay Franklin. Who's based in the Republic of Ireland, and he's done a lot of work over the years on men and masculinity issues, um, including a lot of work with older men, uh, organisations such as the Men's Development Network in Ireland and the Men Engage Alliance. Is that right, Shay?
2: That's true. Good to see you this morning. For me, yes. I've been I've been sitting, what I describe as sitting in circles with men, for about 25 years in one setting or another, whether it is around health, or as my latter years, as I got older. Uh, the men that I was sitting with became older as well. Um, And in fact, I've stopped saying older, I just now say old, admitting that (laughs) I am old. Somebody born in 1951, officially, as far as where I'm sitting, is an old man. And uh, yeah, that masculinity is an interesting one to look at.
0: Absolutely. If you recall, we interviewed Colm Kelly Ryan from Men's Development Network on a previous episode of Now and Men which is entitled Men Marching Against Violence Against Women. That was when Stephen and I and various others uh, were in Seville. Mm. So thanks for speaking to us, Shay. We're really interested in the work you do with different groups of older men in Ireland. Could you perhaps perhaps tell us a little bit more about what that involves? What what do you actually do in the groups and how do you initiate and run them?
2: Okay. It began in a a community on the edge of Dublin, uh, which is reasonably described as a marginalised community um, with lots of different, diverse, marginalised populations. One of the populations is uh, what I think in the official parlance is called sheltered housing. There's about 120 bedsit studio units uh, occupied by people in the main over 55 um, and about 90 of them are men. Um, and they are men who are live quite isolated lives and they have ended up in that situation for a variety of reasons. Some of them are men that migrated to the u k and worked in things like construction in when they were in the full of their health and able as was the situation here in the fifties sixties and seventies and those men at the end of their at this end of their lives are now of no uh, Economic use to uh, those organisations that they worked for, and they've returned to Dublin. Uh, there are other men who are men who experienced homelessness and, or, or addiction um, or isolation for a series of other reasons, it, and most of them will have ended up without family support networks. And the local community is a very active community development project uh, which has a strong connection with one of the universities and there's a uh, a con- continuing rolling stream of young people who are on uh, what would they call it practice with, with with the community project and out of that grew a an out what we described as outreach and it was outreach meant these young people knocking on doors uh, and basically just checking that the men were still upright and or that they they didn't need uh, help in any direct way. So that that was the first step out of isolation. The next step was that uh, Tommy Coombs, who's the project coordinator, uh, set up a Friday morning old men's breakfast. And that was a community breakfast in the community center. And it grew from being a, just a men's breakfast to being a community breakfast. And nowadays there's upwards of a hundred people coming to breakfast. And they, we'd been using kind of the big breakfast as a, as a way to get men, men in the door in a variety of different places. And it, basically by offering breakfast, you give a man cover. He's not coming for support. He's coming for a meal or for some company. Um, And after breakfast, we would retire to an upper room, as they say, and sit in a circle. And um, over time, and it's 10 or 12 years, we developed a way of being together that set about saying, well, here we sit, we sit in a circle because there's no hierarchy. My task here is to be one of this group. I'm I'm an old man like yourselves, and we share time. And as a kind of further endorsement of equality uh, and diversity, that every man is welcome. But also we share time literally because sometimes men coming out out of isolation can come in two different ways. One is they don't really know how to talk. They've forgotten. And the other is they can't stop talking because they don't know how to listen. So with the advent of the blessed iPhone, we could say I'd look around the room and say there's eight of us here. We're here for two hours. That means you have 15 minutes. Hmm. Who wants to go first? And while that was a bit uncomfortable in the beginning, we got to a point where we knew each other and we began to trust each other and show that trust in each other by by listening. Um, And um, we agreed that things like, well, we don't interrupt each other, we don't give advice, we listen to a man's struggle. And that's effectively the sum total of it. So that it is about uh giving good attention, whatever that means. And that means you know building community, creating social capital, whatever version of it that that you wish. But but it it was about building community. Um, and men that you know were used to living isolated lives began to find a place together. You well know? um and essentially that's what what it had become. COVID wiped it out because these men are not men that have access to technology. Even if they have laptops or iPads, they're, they're not really engaged with uh, stepping over that barrier. I mean, what in fact happened in that community was that Tommy, the coordinator, created a food bank that by the end of the first year was feeding something like 600 people and some of the men who were part of the men's group were working as volunteers and some not volunteers in terms of van driving and things like that as part of the food bank so you know and that's the real meaning of social capital mm-hmm. you know and creating community
0: and how does how does masculinity, in your view, fit into this work? I mean, I think you said a little bit about that, but you know, obviously, getting older, you know, it's quite it can be quite a challenging experience for a lot of men, particularly those mm. you've described as socially yeah. disadvantaged. You know, you've yeah. got this notion of what being a man is all about that you've yeah. grown up with: be tough, yeah. be strong, be in control. And then you mm. discover, as you age, you're not like that.
2: Yeah, um, and and re- remember another thing that that. By by the time I'm 60 or 65, I've had a lot of practice at being that man that I have been taught to be. So the shell that I have built has become quite hard and stiff and rigid and creating a space where that can soften um, and the need to be self-reliant or resilient it begins to weaken and um, I mean at one stage there was a series of men with a series of of serious physical ailments Um, and the way we were able to keep check on things that was that we had a competition once a month, which was about talking about how many tablets we took every day. So I'm so there's the pink one and that's for that and there's the blue one and that's for that there's the oval one and that's for that and you know and suddenly we have a conversation about the different struggles we have there was the man who wanted we had a long argument he he got every fortnight he got a serious injection because he struggled with his mental health and it was we had we had an hour on well you know I only I only get this once a fortnight but really, I mean, it surely has the value of one a day and all these, which leads into a conversation about him, how he worries about getting the injection, the side effects of it, the, the need for it. And suddenly you're stepping past those harsh, rigid masculinities and you're speaking about and hearing about. And it, I mean, I'm you know. I take eleven tablets every day. You know, seven of them to keep me well, and the others are to prevent things. You know, supplements and things like that. So, for well, me stepping in like that, rather than being a a disinterested objective person, hmm. part of it was for me was being I am here with you. There was there was definitely I'm I'm a middle class man very definitely um, and it's known and it's clear by the difference in accent and, and everything else mm. so we have to accept that but to be at the same sitting in the same circle taking the same time means that you're stepping past those the history of a man that has worked in carrying a hod or digging tunnels you know at the at the wrong end of a hierarchy, all his life, you know, um, or that has for reasons of class being marginalised, or for reasons of you know family background, maybe he was raised in one of those terrible, in Ireland they're religious-run state you know state-funded homes, um, so that everything going out to contradict his belief about himself that he doesn't have value. Mm. And, that's, and that's where the breakfast comes from, you know, it says and twice a year we did what we grandiosely called the Men's Health Day and we went to a hotel which had a carvery and we would sit for the day together and it was in, you know, it was in a, a three-star ho- local hotel but it was saying you are welcome here, you are valued here." Um, so going against, and uh, my, my context has always been to say, and it, nowadays we say transforming masculinities, the language we used 25 years ago in the Men's Development Network was contradicting male gender conditioning. You know, we believe men are marginalised by male gender conditioning, that, that we're drawing away from people, I'm supposed to be stoic and silent, I'm supposed to be strong. I'm supposed to be resilient and self-reliant, you know, so, and when I'm not able for that, my sense is to pull away and to shrink. I've heard, you know, to, I've heard the, the language of, you know, retreat to my cave, that it, and everything is about contradicting that and understanding and seeing every man as individual.
1: I was wondering what, um, what, what are some of the impacts that that has, Shay, on, on the men that, that have taken part in the work you do? Like, have you got any examples of you know, the, the positive effect that, that engaging in this kind of discussion can
2: have? Well, um, yeah, I, I have in my file somewhere a one-page application for 1,500 euros from, to, the, the, to the health system to fund, that, that was funding for a year of this work. And across the bottom of, I wrote, in the margin, I wrote, there's no space in this form to say that two men are alive today because of this program that wouldn't be if this program didn't exist. And I know that to be true. And in in the days of evidence-based work, you know, work with, work with men work with old men is slow, steady and, and vital. But the reality is that you don't, because so little of it goes on, you don't see the output, you know. In the Men's Health Forum, Ian, Ian Banks had, had a phrase which was, you know, horizontal men are much more expensive than vertical men. In other words, if you're flat on your back in a hospital, it costs an awful lot more to keep you going. You mm. Know? Mm. And we got written into the men's health policy way back in 2008 9 the idea that community based services around the idea of uh, the social determinants of health, in other words, isolation and all of the rest, by tackling the isolation, you began to remediate some, some of the issues.
1: Yeah, well that's interesting you, you mentioned that actually because um, yeah, we, we can't help but notice that in Ireland you have this men's health strategy now which you've had for a few years. I mean, would you say that that's been you know, quite a useful kind of initiative um, from your experience and, yeah, yeah, in any particular ways?
2: Yeah, yes, I mean, I think in particular in that way in that it allowed uh, activity to be funded by the health service. We have also in parallel there's the Irish men's sheds and men men's sheds. I mean, and they're now pretty well in 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 Irish parlance. In in most parishes in the country, we'll have a men's shed of one kind or another, um, and it's that's based around bringing men together to do things together. It's a it's a particular version of masculinity that. Um, is less developmental than the the approach I like, but that's you know anything that brings men out of isolation is good as far as far as I'm I'm concerned, you know. So and they are they are well funded, um, and now are a channel in terms of health information, health support, mental health support, uh, and social supports. So they they they're significant, and the men's health policy. Uh, did bring the idea of men being gendered beings and their health and responses to health services being gendered to uh, to an audience that was never there before. The Men's Development Network are part of, of a program that uh, supported the health service and social services to get to grips with the idea of, well, here are ways to think about working with men that might be more helpful and encouraging than uh, the normal, um, I'm wagging my finger approach, Mm. which, yeah, the infantilization of men by uh, the biomedical model is an old hobby horse of Mm. mine.
1: (laughs) And would you say there are any downsides to that kind of policy approach? Like, you know, does it end up treating men's health and women's health as very separate when obviously in reality, they're very interrelated. I mean, I suppose like one big issue for older men, perhaps, is if they if they lose their partner, for example, we know that that can have quite a detrimental impact on yes. some. I mean, obviously it would have on any, anyone, but but maybe they become more isolated often. Yeah. Do you have any. Um,
2: I, I, well, I, I think that. I think there is a need for policy to understand that we are gendered beings. And therefore, when I turn up, something different might be required. Then when my partner turns up, my wife turns up. You know, and and I think that happens automatically, but it happens against the the frame of reference, the perspective of the of the person in the white. And they don't wear white coats anymore. They now wear um, what do you call it scrubs. Um, but the the person on the other side of the desk. So I'm dependent on them for their version of my masculinity. You know, I mean, I, I, have, I had a heart attack in two thousand and eight, and sitting with the doctor soon after that, she handed me a, a stuff about my diet and suggested that I give it to my wife. You know, and I said, "Thank you very much." <laughs> <laughs> Do you realize what you're saying? You know, and she was, she was a, a a young doctor. You know, and that's the, that was her perspective and. That's the piece that, is, uh, that needs change. And if, if, you're, if you've been trained in the biomedical model, the idea of a social context and therefore gender is miles away.
0: Mm-hmm. One, thing, one thing we wondered was what um, impact doing this kind of work has on you personally. Do you, do you find it helps you to get through challenges you've had in your own life? Or, or does it yeah. take a toll on you as well?
2: All of those um, when I, 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 and to be clear, I mean I came to this work at a time in in '97 when I you know, I was 40 46, 47 um, and things were changing in my life. I had a career that the career in advertising where I was realizing that well, I'm older than most of my colleagues. Um, and it took it took some time but about another four years five years before i stepped away uh, from that um and stumbling stumbling into my first men's you know it was a resi- it was a two and a half day residential with the men's development network in 97 the 12th of july i haven't forgotten it um and that was uh an introduction to, there was about 60, 70 men there um, and it was introduction to the idea of vulnerable men, of uh, sitting, um, there were, because of the time it was, there was also conflict there because there, it was the, there were men there that were, if you like, with a, a particular version of masculinity being more rigid and we would now describe them as men's rights. I came to know them as the angry men. Um, So it it was an introduction to all of that and to an understanding that who, I don't know who says about the unexamined life when my, my life had been significantly unexamined until then I had been busy building a career and a successful career in, in the advertising world, which that's where my head was. Um, as things changed for me, as things as things changed in me, I began to discover other things. So it was sitting in those spaces that I realised the impact of looking back. Mm. Um, I grew up in a house that was, while well, on one hand it was led by a strong feminist woman, but on the other side, I lived with more than some chaos and. And fear and sometimes terror of violence, um, and suddenly, I was in a space where I could look at all of that and begin to understand its effect on me. you know uh, one, one of the things that I had the benefits I began to recognize was I was really good at my job in terms of developing communications and business strategy. And I was really good at managing, working with big groups of powerful people because I had developed as a small boy a degree of hyper vigilance, of being able to read the wind because I had to be able to read the wind. So, So what I found was sitting with men and with putting together the agreement that I spoke about with the older men, putting those together, those agreements in place beforehand, you know, it gave structure, it gave, you know, oh, well, I've seen that man take a risk. I can do some of that. I can step into that. I can begin to understand and work out about myself and how it is to be. Hmm. During During that career in business, one of the things I did was run focus groups which gave me an understanding that I could run a focus group um and with a bit with a bit of training around facilitation about holding sessions about people's lives rather than about toothpaste or politics or Guinness that which you know it seemed to me well I better you know validate my my experience um before stepping in and I did that. And then I began to volunteer as a facilitator. And then as my career went away, I began to do freelance facilitation. And then and I, most of the time I worked with men who were living with the impact of marginalization of one kind or another. So I worked with uh, Irish traveler men, these older men, Uh, men from refugee and asylum seeker backgrounds and by all of the time for me it was about valuing every individual and a a man might turn up with a huge weight on his shoulders um, but our, our agreement always was that no man's issue is more important than any other and by the way we're not here to give advice or solve your problem. I had a great poem that says, you know, yes, I see the hellacious burden that you carry. No, I won't help you carry it, but I will help you put it down so that you can see it clearly. Mm -hmm. And fundamentally that that's the experience I've had again and again over the years. Um, and the number of times I've said, God, I thought I dealt with this and suddenly it comes Mm -hmm. triggered by something. It could be news. It could be something I experience in a group uh, something I hear and Mm. it comes. And in that instance, I suppose um, I developed a practice which was about reflection. And it was about, okay. I heard that. I know I have responded to it, but actually I have a, a role to play here, which isn't about my response to the resonance, it's actually take it somewhere else and work with it. And in the main, I came to the point where a lot of the work I was I did was as a pair. So I worked with another man and there would always be 15 minutes after a session to have something to say about ooh, how that landed so that it's not being swallowed. It yeah. comes and is available to, to be worked at.
0: I'm interested um in what you said a minute ago about the use of poetry as well Mm. you know i mean i know we share an interest in uh grayson perry and Mm. his his uh his tv show you know where he he enables people to open up about their inner life in a way through their art i mean you know do you want to say a bit more about how you use poetry and in that way and how how do you access yeah, you know, the emotional lives of, of these groups that you're talking about who are often well, very, very marginalised and, as you say, will have built up these shells around them. Yes,
2: yeah. Well, I, I don't know who said it or whether I said it first, but when poets are people that put words in the right order that gets us to places that we won't naturally go, you know. And... I, I don't know, I, well, I know a bit about the the English uh, education system. The Irish education system does not treat, uh, certainly if you're my age, did not treat people, pupils very well. Um, and the notion of poetry brings people back to that time. And the resistance is, can be really strong. When I came to it via, the, inspired by Robert Bly and his uh approach to 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 working with men, so that he would either tell a story or have somebody tell a, a fairy, basically a, a fairy story out of Grimm or out of one of the others, um, or uh, use his own poetry or other poetry, um, and then ask the question. And, and the question, generally speaking, was, "And where are you in this?" You know? So. If you bring a poem like Mary Oliver's White Geese saying you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk for a hundred miles on your knees in the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Show me your despair and I will show you mine. That goes against everything that I was ever taught. I did have to be good, you know, as a 1950s child. Being a good boy was all important, not causing trouble, not breaking the rules, living up to you know, expectations. So to be told you do not have to be good is a really powerful piece of kit. you know. <laughs> um, and I, I would turn up at a group with a sheet, with a poem like that on it for every man in the audience, in the circle, the same poem, and we would read it one line at a time, moving from man to man. You do not have to be good. And it would go around maybe for 10 minutes so that every line was heard by every man from every man. And the power of that and the release of it, of hearing my voice, voice those words suddenly, yes, you're putting words into people's mouths, but you're also putting words into people's hearts and minds that can shake, shake the ground. That's the reality of the power of, you know, William Stafford is another, you know, American poet. They're on the bookshelf here, you know, Heaney, whatever you say, say nothing, you know, I mean, wow. Um, And the power of those, just i remember being challenged by a one of one of the a project we were doing was being evaluated and i was challenged by the evaluator um it was sitting in mean, my terms sitting on his high horse but you know poetry is very middle class isn't it do these do these men understand you know, i didn't uh, in in my response to that and i got called on it later i I used very strong language about his version of these men, you know, and, and what they could be capable of understanding.
0: I mean, you mentioned there. I mean, Robert Bly, for example. You know, and he has a particular reputation, should we say? Some some feminists would say, well, you know, Robert Bly tends to leave women out of the equation and so mm. on and so forth. Um, but uh, and, but now. I mean, you're part of the Men Engage Network, which is mm. an avowedly, you know, feminist, pro-feminist network, yes. whatever you want to call it. So I'm, I'm kind of interested in your, you've been on a bit of a journey and I, I believe yes. we're all on a bit of a journey, but I wonder yeah. if you could say something about that for you as well.
2: Okay. A series of journeys, really. Um, you, Some of you will have heard me say, I'm an old white middle-class Irish man. And Those are all bits of identity that are describing my bits of identity. And um, I had to learn that each of those uh, meant that I had a degree of privilege attaching to each of them. While, yes, my father was a professional, he was a chartered accountant and I lived a middle class life. But it was middle class life with a degree of chaos and some lax in it, shall we say. And so therefore, I never really saw myself as middle class. Well, I was the boy in the class. I was at the tail end of, I'm one of eight children and I was towards the end of them. So the clothes I wore had been worn by others before me and possibly the shoes. Uh, as i was a child and so i saw myself in that context so i never saw myself as middle class and it wasn't until in fact it was at a, a men's development network summer school residential where a man from Derry, who which is a very working class context challenged me and said of course you're middle class you know it's everything about you Is middle class, and I was, and I had become avowedly middle class, but it was really, it took me until then, in my mid-40s, to acknowledge that I was, and that I had acquired privilege attaching to that. When I was working in business, I turned up at the boardroom tables of some of the biggest companies in Ireland, at the boardroom tables of the ministries facing the ministers, in one case, the prime minister, the Taoiseach, as we call him here. So it was, I was very definitely middle class and I had that access and that power. I had to learn in pretty well the same way that as a man, I had a gender because you know, in my thirties, what did I know about gender? There was women's studies, you know, in the library and in, and in Waterstones and it became gender studies but the only thing to do with men was to do with queer studies at that time. So I actually had to discover that masculinity was a thing and that I had a gender and patriarchy existed and I I remember you know now Raewyn Connell standing in Trinity College using the word hegemonic patriarchal dividend Um, and I will never forget it because i was still living in that stage of my life where i was wrestling with the effect the deficit effect of masculinity so i had to learn that piece of privilege as well and and much more recently where race walked in the door you know and it was at a men engaged meeting a woman of color from the US looked around the room and said, I want to hear from a white man. There weren't that many white men in the room and I took the microphone and for the first time I said, I am an old white Irish man. And that what I know about race is very little. I remember in the seventies, traveling to the UK to work and being surprised at the number of men and women working on the underground who were black when it was when ireland was a monoglot, single culture single color so i had to, i had to go through all of those steps you know and that's the journey of getting here is to see those and i've been involved with men engage since 2009 in one fashion or another and it it taught me really clearly how to understand my background my identity but also see others really clearly because men engage is a place of with people of courage and that's what they expect of me when I'm there well and I'm I'm I've never been more grateful. I describe myself as feminist in how I approach things. Um, Sometimes I hear the word pro-feminist and it's not clear enough for me. It's not definite enough for me. I am very definitely feminist in my thinking, I hope, and learning. Uh, And that is the piece. Here I am. Just passed my 74th birthday, and I still have to learn fundamental things about the world.
1: It makes me think, um, I I suppose, sometimes in in kind of, you know, men engaged circles and things we talk about perhaps like doing inner work. Um, and I know that's something which, which you take really seriously mm. and you're kind of pointing to there. Um, so, yeah, I, I was just wondering if you could perhaps just say a little bit about, you know, what does that mean to you? What, what does it involve to you? And why, why is it important that, you know, men like us do that kind of inner work right. in your view? I,
2: I think that we don't have any choice because it's not all in the head. You know, it's in the whole of us, you know, I carry it all. When I feel fear, it's not a rational thing. It's down here in the gut and I know it because I am asked to listen to it. And that's where the inner work comes in. I'm asked and I've been taught to listen to it and asked to respond to it so that, to come away from that meeting where I was asked, you know, I want to hear from a white man. That was in response. We were sitting in a big room. There were a table with four sides, if you like, and there was about 40 people. And the people facing me, when I walked into the room, there was a, my, my habit when I walk into a room of new, mostly new people, is to sit with people that I don't know. That's my habit. And that's to do with my, my nervousness and my fear. And I looked around and there was an array of people of color on the other side of the table with one seat. And I looked and I discerned quite quickly that that was not the place to take. So these were people from Africa and what they would have described or did describe the African diaspora. And they had come together and sat together in solidarity with themselves. And, and I raised the question because the question was live in me. I said, you know, I, said, I reported what I said and they, they explained really clearly. Well, they sat, they didn't know each other in the main, but they sat to be with each other, to be with their brothers and sisters of colour. And it was a really powerful moment, you know. And I didn't, I, I, I left that meeting with that sitting on my shoulder. And I I have been using it to prod myself into becoming understanding how it is that I am each of those things. And that's the inner work as far as I'm concerned. That's when I have to put my feet on the floor and just be with it, you know, Um, and to be able to hear and work with the idea that I have a sexist past. I hope that it is a past and I have been racist in terms of things that I have done or not done and be aware of it and be conscious of it and learn from it. That's the, for me, that's the inner work. Otherwise we skate past, we're like a dragonfly. Skating across the top of the pond, we just don't go deep, and until we do, that's when it is down in, in the depths. There be the monsters. You know, and that that's the value within our work.
1: So it's, I suppose there's an element as well where it's kind of it's beneficial to yourself as oh, well, I ab- suppose, ab- isn't it? Ab-
2: ab- absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's it's how I yeah face whatever it is I have to face. Uh, as I said, you know, the number of times I've said to myself, God, I thought I dealt with that you know, and suddenly there it is again, you know, maybe brought up by a question or whatever. And I've learned that I can't ignore those things, that I really have to look them in the eye.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I get the impression that something which might have caused some kind of reflection among at least perhaps some men in Ireland um, was the murder earlier this year, the, the horrible murder of Aisling Murphy, a 23-year-old mm. primary school teacher who was attacked and killed while she was jogging on the 21st of January this yeah. year. So I was just wondering if you could perhaps um, tell us a little bit about, you know, what impact has this case had in Ireland, in your view? You know, has has there been... More discussion as uh, about you know men's violence towards women and and do you think that things are, are moving forwards in Ireland in that regard or what what's your view? Well,
2: I I think they are, I think I think they very definitely are. That I think you know they're, they're yeah, um, I'm silenced a bit by that. What's that about? I think yes, violence against women and other marginalised communities is very definitely receives instant opprobrium, instant. But I think there is a layer underneath there that says, I wonder if she was brown, would the same thing happen? And I am increasingly uncomfortable about how we are with race in Ireland. We have been a monoglot culture for so long. We have been when when I was growing up, there were two kinds of people in Ireland. There were Catholics and something called non-Catholics. That was the language. And when we began to have migrants arriving in Ireland, we had nationals and non nationals that was the way we spoke about the difference you know? in other words, we were really good at othering you know mm. and and our history is one where we you know were a post colonial colonized place, you know And we wrestle furiously with what that means to be in the world. And yeah, I remember Erin Pizzi, who was the founder of uh, Women's Aid, arriving in Ireland and appearing on the television, on the Late Late Show, and she was interviewed. And I remember it because of my own history, I remember seeing it. And the 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 question was well, was this really needed? You know, was were refuges really required? You know, within six months, I was putting windows in an old Georgian house, which was the first refuge. I think I was eighteen at the time. In an old Georgian house in the centre of Dublin, we were repairing the windows. It had been given by the developer. It was idle and we were making, and I remember the steel going on the back of the door. And it was because somebody knew my history and asked me, would I bring my hammer and my saw and put some windows in? So, and the, the world has moved on. It's acknowledged, it's clear, you know, it's well, you know, refuges are well supported, not enough, but they're, they're well supported. And in the main, the the response to gender-based violence is to talk against it the difficulty is about engaging with men we the men's development network have the white ribbon campaign and they've been really successful it has been really successful when the that self-same Irish soccer team wears a white ribbon uh when it, when it plays in Ireland um, Men's development network gets to rattle the bucket at at international games, um, and you know so it has got a presence. I think there's a huge amount still to be done in terms of engaging with men about not being bystanders. I think all of that conversation needs to be had.
0: You said quite a lot um, just a minute ago about changes in social changes in Irish society. I, I'm interested that you, I think you didn't mention, you know, the legalisation of same-sex marriage, 20, yeah. 2015, you know, 2018, legalisation of abortion. I mean, these are yes. these are huge changes for Ireland, which, you know, perhaps one couldn't have anticipated, really. And in a way, they counterpose some of the more reactionary changes that have been going the other way in, in other countries. But what do you think that says about Irish society today? I mean, is it just a is it just the declining power of the, the Catholic Church or is it much more complex than that? And
2: I, I, I think that, yeah, I gonna mean, refer to something else very quickly. I, I, I don't know enough about English soccer to remember the man's name, who, the young man who came out as gay, you know? Um, I'm, I'm a Guardian reader, reader as well. <laughs> and one of the, the pieces of analysis that I saw was that the response was twofold. If you're under 30, the response was, so what? And if you were older than that, it was, isn't it amazing? And it strikes me that both of the the same sex marriage and in fact, abortion uh, legalization in Ireland went that way. For for the same-sex marriage uh, change in the Constitution, the most amazing thing that happened was that there were convoys of young people who came home to vote. There were people who got on a plane in Adelaide, Australia and flew home, voted and got back on a plane and went back again. There were minibuses and high vans and convoys of cars that filled up the ferries with people coming from the UK. It was organized on social media, you know, that and they were all under 30 basically. You know. mm. um, and they in fact the the repeal campaign, in fact both campaigns, were built around the notion that People told their stories, so it became about, it became personal and suddenly we knew people and because we were seeing them um, and we knew what they looked like and they were prepared to stand up, you know, in a way that didn't happen before. I was part of the divorce uh, referendum. There was 5,000 votes won that. That was it, 5,000 votes. And I remember di- walking around, I was working in an ad agency at the time. I remember walking around the office and checking, saying, do you know somebody in a second relationship? And everyone, there were 60 people in the building, everyone had. And out of that grew a line that was everybody deserves a second chance. So it wasn't about policy, it wasn't about property. It was everybody deserved a second chance. And we issued instructions to everybody that was appearing in any radio program, any television, the last thing they said was everybody deserves a second chance. And it was bringing it down home, bringing it personal. And that that was an overcoming of fear. You know, we got past the, what will people say? There were 16 women who told their story of having an abortion and went public on it and put their names on it. And suddenly they're real people. And they became, Because they, because we expect compassion and empathy, they became not available for attack by the right wing, if that's the appropriate description. And it defeated, it defeated that. And suddenly, I mean, it, conversations, I mean, I, I remember conversations about zygotes and things like that on a previous attempt. I mean, where does life begin? You know, all, all of that suddenly became irrelevant because it was about people's lives yeah. and people were prepared to stand up and show themselves. I remember a, a, on on said Late Late Show, which is, I, there's no equivalent in the UK, yeah. but there was, there, there was an interview with what I can only describe as a little old lady. She was about 80 and she was asked, and how are you voting? And she she said, oh, I'm voting for. And he said, why? She says, I want my grandson to be happy. And it was kind of poof, you know. Everything got, got swept aside, you know. I want my grandson to be happy. You know, this was from from the part of the population that will be at mass not just every Sunday, but probably several times a week. So yeah, it's a changed place.
0: It's so great that all those changes have happened, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah. just extraordinary, really. But. Um, I could listen to you all day, actually, Shay. But I'm, I'm thinking that maybe time is against us. Okay.
1: Yeah, I agree with Sandy. I mean, I I also could listen to you talk all day. But yeah, we probably should should bring it to a conclusion. But yeah, first we thought because I think you 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 engage in writing yourself, don't you? So would you like to read? Is it? Would you describe it as a poem or a kind of Oof. piece of writing about it was, being an older man?
2: It was a piece of writing that set out to be to be some kind of a reflection on older men older men's masculinities and it, start, it started off as old man's masculinity And then I then I stuck in the front of it an old man's masculinity as a way of because it had become just really about me and where, where I got to. Um, and I hope it's true. Yeah. Thank you. So an old man's masculinities. As I grow old, my body changes, weakens, adjusts to the physical work, whatever it is. That it has done over the last 70 years. My mind is sharp, able to connect the dots using the practice developed as a boy, as a young man, as a mature adult man, then as what I describe as an adept man, now as a reflective man. My emotions are fluid and more available. My practice of reflection allows time and space for consideration of the feelings and the needs of my heart and soul. My openness to connection among men supports each of these and challenges me to acknowledge the part other men play in how I have changed and am changing as I age. I feel no less of a man. In fact, more of a man as I let more and more in through the barriers that I learned so well to erect as part of my survival. I learned to swallow my tears, shown to be unwelcome as a schoolboy in the 50s. I relearned to let them flow when I felt safe, encouraged and supported by other men. I learned to numb out rather than feel the terror of living with the threat of chaos and violence. I slowly relearned to allow the experience of feeling, sadness, fear, terror, anger, and I learned to live with the fear that it wouldn't survive the feelings. And I did survive. And I learnt that the emotions were not in control. I learned that I could manage how I was without going numb. In a culture at school where athletic prowess was the signifier of an able young man, my lack of coordination marked me as an outsider because there was no expectation at home. For me to perform. I cared little for this inclusion. If I had been academically lacking I suspect I would have met with more condemnation. This lack of physical presence stayed with me through adolescence and into adulthood. I have never been engaged in sport or indeed interested even as a spectator. I had no sense of myself as a strong physical being notwithstanding being six foot tall sitting with men and finding and offering good attention, sharing time and space, creating community. This is what allows me to discover my courage. And along with the struggle came the celebration of joy, delight, connection and words.
0: Thanks so much, (laughs) Shay. That seems to me to be such a powerful summary of who you are and what you do, you know? Um, Thank you. Thank you so much for that. I yeah. feel a bit emotional actually just listening to you. So I might have yeah. to stop now <laughs> before I before I wobble off completely. But uh, thank you so well, much for talking to us today.
2: Yeah, wobbling off is okay. That's true. <laughs> thank you both.
1: Well thank you so much Shay, for, for Thanks, sharing Shea. with us uh, a lot that you have shared with us and, and for all the great work you do. I feel like we could all probably learn a lot from your approach and the work you're doing and there's a need for a lot more of it I think, isn't there? So
0: well, Stephen, that that was a quite an emotional interview I thought with uh, Shay there. What did you make of it?
1: Yes, I agree really. I mean, yeah, it was it was emotional and moving as you say. And actually I I felt quite hopeful towards the end when he was talking about the situation in Ireland and you know how Irish society has changed and some of the some of the big changes that have happened in recent years about marriage, about abortion, um, these kinds of things, you know, moves towards gender equality. Um, It kind of shows you what's possible, especially in a world where, you know, unfortunately, there are lots of bad things happening in that respect. Obviously in the US, the situation with Roe versus Wade, for example, like clearly abortion rights is something which we can never take for granted, but it shows that this kind of positive change is possible, doesn't it? And perhaps it's something to reflect on as well for us here in the UK, you know, at a time when a uh, country is in quite a lot of kind of turbulence and turmoil about things like Brexit, that things can be done differently. And, and also with, with refugees, for example, you know, Ireland has been, I think, they're hosting a lot more refugees than the UK has in, in recent years as well. So, so, yeah, I think perhaps it's showing us how to do things in a, in a different way in, in some ways. What, what, what did you make of it?
0: Yeah, I thought it was fascinating to, to hear him talk about some of the social changes that have happened and, and how significant those obviously are. And um, what occurs to me is that in some ways, you know, what Shea said about his own life mirrors some of the social changes that have happened in Ireland more generally, really, I mean he talked about growing up in, you know, what sounds like quite a sort of uh, middle class but but also restrictive and potentially violent or, or actually violent at times and moving through the changes in his life towards a position where he's um, saying that you know he's a, f- a feminist practitioner. I mean that's quite a journey that you're talking about there really, mm-hmm. isn't it? You know, yeah. and he also mentioned key sort of transition moments along the way for him, you know, particularly moving from the corporate world to uh, giving that up and and his focus now on uh, inner work, you know that's that's a fascinating transition he he had there and and obviously the moment of retirement or or uh, leaving work can be a key moment for men um, where they reassess where they're at but also it's a moment where they may lose a lot of their social networks, a lot of their friends, you know, based primarily around work. I mean, obviously that can happen for women too, but I think particularly so for men, for whom work is so central, really. Mm. Um, and he also mentioned, and we didn't even pick it up, actually, the fact that they've had a heart attack, you know, and and, the, mm. and health issues, again, can be moments where men can think about, you know, where they've got to, where they want to be, uh, what they need to change. So, so yeah, that was, that was powerful for me.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. These different pivotal moments in men's lives can be real moments of reflection and potential change or, you know, adaptation, moving moving in different ways as, yeah, Shay has done all these different things in his life and I had that real journey, as you say. I thought as well it was interesting what he said about men's health and how, you know, when he went to the doctor, actually she was saying like, you know, well, I, I can give these to your wife and there's something interesting there, isn't there, about how perhaps sometimes still women are... Responsibilized, you know, to, to look after men. Um, and I suppose, yeah, like, obviously the work Shay's doing, it really highlights how men can and should, you know, how we have a lot to gain from reflecting more on on how we can look after ourselves, how we can look after each other. And I think it shows as well, like, what he was saying about the real value and impact and, and power of, of this kind of group work, which he does. You know, when it's done well, when you've got good facilitators, I, I think that can have such an impact, kind of, just being in a room with other people talking about issues which perhaps we don't talk about a lot, you know, perhaps especially among men, not encouraged to talk about things like your emotions, your inner turmoils, your difficulties, what's happening in your life, you know, the men he talked about, obviously going through some really difficult issues, a lot of them, and just the value of being in a group and having, you know, those questions asked and discussed with each other, I think, you know, it's just so, it can be so powerful, can't it? And I just think we need so much more of that. I think that can have a real positive impact on individual people and potentially, you know, in instigating social change that we want to see as well. It's interesting that the focus on older men
0: there as well, I yeah. think, in that, you know, a lot of our sort of uh, policy and practice responses these days are geared at, at younger men, particularly sort of the youth group or, or, or younger. And uh, in a way, older men can perhaps be forgotten to some extent, and, you know, it reminded me of when I did a piece of research for Age Concern, as, as it then was, now incorporated to Age UK, about the needs of socially isolated older men, particularly the kind of group that um, Shay was describing. You know, I went to pub clubs in Gateshead, uh, I went to a day centre in Birmingham, you know, and talked to, the, talked to the guys there. And I really got a sense of how sort of invisible their lives were, you know, particularly for those who are living alone. I think for men who are... Who have partners as you're saying it it can be very different and and they can fare much better but because partly because they're being looked after but for men on their own they're not very visible and i think as one of them said to me you know well older men don't make a fuss uh, and i think that's generally true and uh, it was interesting to to have Shay describe the power of the groups he's he's, he's a member of and, and runs and how even in older life men can access their emotional lives and think through what's happened to them through their life course. So, yeah, there's definitely a, a huge value in all of this
1: yeah yeah absolutely and i also can't help but think about you know with the situation with covid obviously like what impact has that had i mean as Shay mentioned you know on the one hand obviously lots of older men in particular have have died or suffered severe health implications but also like obviously things have increasingly moved online and um, there's perhaps more social isolation as a result of the pandemic so yeah what impact has that had on, on a lot of older men i think that's something really important to consider isn't it yeah but we should probably uh probably wind things up i think at that point But, yeah, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Yes, thanks indeed. Speak to you again. Yes, and please do get in touch with us at nowmen at gmail.com. If you've got questions or issues you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, we very much welcome that. And do share the podcast with your friends uh, as well. Otherwise, yeah, we'll be speaking to you again soon, hopefully. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye.